are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 55, Just the Facts. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. In this episode, I talk with appellate expert Chris Donovan about how we craft a statement of facts for an appellate brief. Not the basics, but the down and dirty of effective advocacy and the ins and outs of the rules. So, Chris Donovan, uh, when we podcast, we talk a lot about appellate workflows uh, and the nitty-gritty of appellate writing and advocacy. So, uh, thanks again for geeking out with me on yet another, uh, you know, writing and writing advocacy topic. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I I love uh, talking about these things. So, I want to talk to you about just one part of appellate writing, a very specific part, the statement of facts. Um, Well, let me ask you, you know, how, how important do you think the statement of facts is? Is it just a something you, you know, you have to grit your teeth and grind through or do you think it's uh it's an important part of the brief? Dwayne, I think that there are exceptions obviously, <clears throat> but on a whole, I think the facts section is a very important part of the brief because it's the first thing other than the table of contents, it's the first thing that the judges are really going to read. So, you know, it needs to have a narrative hook almost. I mean, it, I, I kind of view it as uh, an area where you could really draw in your audience, almost like a, 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 a novelist author that wants to you know, write for pleasure, so to say. I, I think that a lot of people miss opportunities there in the facts section to begin objectively, but begin persuading the judges. Yeah, I think that's right. You're right. Like any good novel needs a good opening paragraph, right? Uh, Any good news story needs a lead that kind of uh, draws people in and gets them to read the rest. And yeah, I think that's a good analogy that the the statement of facts is like your first opportunity to really capture the the reader's attention. And, um, you know, whether you're reading a novel or a news story or an appellate brief, that's what we need to do, right? We need to grab the reader's attention. But, uh, particularly the judicial reader who's busy, who's probably just read something else that's boring, uh, who's ready to move on to the next brief. And, and if you can kind of wake them up uh, and compete for their attention because they're probably reading on their iPad and so they're probably getting notifications, et cetera, then you you, you should take that opportunity. You know, it's funny, uh, as we were preparing for this podcast, I was reminded of your, your uh, uh, podcast from a few uh, months ago with your, uh, I think it was your uncle on the Hemingway uh, podcast on the Hemingway. And and I really liked that podcast because that's exactly what your fact section should be. Maybe not Hemingway's or, you know, flowery language necessarily, but certainly uh, spending time crafting the facts in a way that is conducive to being read by everybody, not just uh, uh, the judges. It doesn't have to be about flower markets on the Sorbonne, but it you know it can still be interesting. <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious: uh, Do you draft your statement of facts first when you start drafting, or how, what's your what's your workflow as far as that goes? A statement of facts as compared to your argument section. Yeah, you know, when I first started, I. 
I actually didn't. I was one of those who didn't spend enough time on my statement of facts, and 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 I jumped right into the law and and then did it afterwards. But then I realized that from an efficiency standpoint, it makes no sense to read the record and and then not draft the facts. So because uh, the 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 records is is the freshest that the record's going to be is right after you read it. So if you if you're going to need to try to connect what you're saying in the facts section to the record, then I, I feel like you need to draft the facts. Plus. Drafting the facts helps me think about my argument and what I need to argue later. And of course, I do go back and tweak it later to make sure I haven't included unnecessary facts or too many unnecessary facts, at least. Yeah, I do the same thing. I, I, I start with the statement of facts, uh, statement of the case. Um, a lot of times I'll try and get the trial lawyer involved in that aspect uh, just to get their perspective on you know, what facts are important or if there's some procedural thing that I'm not really fully, fully getting the gist of or whatever. But, but I definitely think of it, and it sounds like you do too, I definitely think of it as a sort of a living document, right? Um, as I'm going through and writing my argument, I'm sort of constantly going back to the facts and tweaking the language so that maybe it matches something in one of the cases that I'm discussing or, you know, I, I try and always keep thinking about the statement of the facts as I'm putting the argument together. I mean, that's a great point you made too, is, is uh, going back and after you've read a case, tweaking your facts to sound like the case, because then it's already in their mind. And then by the time they get to the, to the, to the, that part of your argument, it, you know, it's reinforced and they're going to hopefully rule in the same way as that case. I love it when that situation happens. Yeah, that's one of the hooks I like to use in my writing generally is some of the same sort of phrases. You know, if you can use the certain phrases in your statement of facts and in your argument and in your summary of the argument, you know, it's one of those hooks that keeps reminding the reader of what you've said and that because the repetition and, and I try to be subtle about it, but, but I like to use that as to sort of a, a tool. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, I'm curious, do you, this is just a minor point, but uh, different people do it different ways. Do you split up your statement of the facts and your statement of the case into two separate, uh, you know, sections, uh, or do you combine it all together? You know, I, I actually don't think this is a minor point. This is something that I feel very passionate about. <laughs> I I. I do it all together. I do not take 9.310B, whatever three it is, or whatever. I do not take that literally where it says, you know, a statement of the case and the facts, comma, which shall include the nature of the case, the course of the proceedings and the disposition of the lower tribunal. I don't think that those are, I don't read everything after statement of the case and facts as subsections of the statement of the case and facts. I, I think that that uh, uh, needs to be spelled out as part of what you're saying, but doesn't those aren't the subsections that you should be putting in your statement of facts. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. See, now, generally, I do separate them. Uh, now, sometimes, in some cases, you I might not. And, and sometimes I combine them if the, if the procedural aspects are so intertwined with the facts, if it's just that kind of case that, that this doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to being separated, I won't. But in a lot of cases, I will. I'll have a that a big heading that says statement of the case and facts, or I think that's from the rule, right? And yeah. then statement of the facts and then statement of the case. And in the statement of the facts, I'll talk about all of the, we'll talk about all the substantive underlying facts. And then 
uh, I'll talk about the procedure and the statement of the case. I mean, for me, it's part of the chronology. It's part of the story. So it would lo- that sort of rigidity would, would lose the story uh, for me. I mean, it, to me, it, it, it's important to say those three things, but show it instead of say it. In other words, my introductory paragraph is probably a nature of the case. It kind of gives them a, a very thumbnail view, the judges meaning by they, the thumbnail view of what this case is about. Um, and then the, the, then I go into my statement of the facts that eventually that talks about, uh, uh, you know, the nitty gritty of what happened uh, leading up to the case. And then my last section will, or last couple of sections, possibly, depending on how important the course of the proceedings were, or, 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 you know, versus the disposition of the, the decision, my last couple of subsections within the facts will be like, you know, and then they filed suit and then talk about what happened when they filed suit and then they filed summary judgment. And that's when I talk about the, the, uh, I mean, I'm not literally, they filed it, but I, it's part of my explanation or part of my story. That's the guideposts I give, not the formal disposition in the lower tribunal, et cetera. It sounds like we're not necessarily saying things that are that different because in a, in a, in a generally chronological approach, the way I do it is kind of the same way, right? Because the facts that give rise to the litigation are generally occur before the litigation starts and are, right. and are over at that point. So, yeah, it's interesting. See, that's what I think. I think it's we're, we're kind of saying the same thing, but I do often, unless there's not unless there's a reason not to, you know, separate the procedure from the facts. So, you know, it's interesting. And I think we just have to, you know, I'm always of the position that you keep an open mind and you see what works best for your particular, you know, circumstance. Very true. I mean, if, it, if the, if the facts are less relevant because this is a straight legal question and, and I mean, purely legal question, like a declaratory relief on a, on a constitutional you know, facial constitutional challenge or something, then the facts really don't matter. Uh, then it's going to be more general course of proceedings and then the disposition. But uh, um, I, I, what actually irks me the most is when people take that order of things literally and you get all this procedural morass in the beginning without actual facts and nobody knows what's happening until they get to the facts and then they have to start over and reread the proceedings. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. No, I agree with you, and I, you know, I take the rules pretty literally, but not 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 that part of the rule. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a you know an, an order of things uh, for sure. Now it sounds like you are generally set up your statement of facts chronologically. Is that is that right? Yes, generally. Uh, I was actually reading a uh, you know read various different legal writing treatises, and and one suggested. You could do chronological or you could do it topical based on the various topics. I, I personally, again, for me, it's the storytelling. And, and I think that effective storytelling sets you up for a good argument. So I want to do it in, in, as chronological as possible. Sometimes events don't happen chronologically. Uh, there was one time where <laughs> things were happening basically at the same time and but they were two separate different issues so i had to figure out a way to deal with that and so i would explain it uh you know what was happening with issue one and then i would my new section was meanwhile and i literally used that phrase meanwhile such and such was happening and so i i you know or i would say you know a short interlude on facts you know and then kind of like fit something in there and then pick it up at the you know 
pick the story up after that. So there are different sort of uh, writing techniques I think you could use straight from literature to uh, drive that chronology. I agree. And I I generally mine are chronological too, because I think that's normally sort of how we think. Hmm. I don't want to do some sort of inception type thing, right? (laughs) Right. um, (laughs) Flashbacks and all that sort of thing. That might be a little too, too literary. True. I have had the statements of facts where I've had to, you know, sort of split it into two different tracks, you know, and talk about, well, this is what was going on on the, you know, in the Hillsborough County side, and this is what was going on on the Pinellas County side, and not necessarily mix them together. But again, it just kind of depends. I think we should, you know, we should feel free to be creative uh, in how we arrange these things to, to make it the most understandable and, like you said, the most engaging. Right. I agree. I agree. Now, do you use any sort of descriptive subheads in your facts to sort of clue the reader to where where you're going? I do. <clears throat> I, I try to make my subheadings uh, for the facts section the core facts that are going to support the headings of my uh, argument section. So that, and and I include everything in the table of of uh, uh, contents. So that if somebody were reading the table of contents, they're going to see almost like a syllogism they're going to see the the the, the as a, as the major premise the major facts and then the minor premise the law and then hopefully they'll reach the right conclusion which will be guided of course in the briefs yeah and i suppose that's i can't remember if we've talked about this before but obviously the table of contents is a good tool for uh, argumentative tool too for mm-hmm. sort of laying out your your argument in a, in a graphical, you know, short form sort of way. But yeah, I think that's right. I think that not, not in the most basic statement of facts, but usually if I have anything that's of any length, I will try and divide it up into sections that have some sort of appropriate descriptive, you know, just sort of roadmap for the reader of of where we're going. I agree. Especially of, you know, if there, if it's a major milestone or a major issue that's going to be talked about later, you know, I'll, I might even, after I do the heading, I might even, you know, and I describe the facts, I might even say, uh, these are the facts from so-and-so's perspective, but they're disputed for, but the other side disputes them or something, you know what I mean? Just so that I can be still objective, but I've, I've accent, I've, I've, uh, uh, highlighted the ones that I think are the most important and obviously favorable to my position, but still recognized these facts are in dispute <laughs> type of thing. Another sort of housekeeping thing. I'm assuming since the statement of facts is the first thing in your brief, for the most part, a statement of facts must be where you establish your short forms for the parties, what you're going to call them. Yes. Yes, and I mean, curious, do you do that again in the argument section, or do you do you do it just once? I only do it once, and I don't always do it the traditional lawyerly way. <laughs> Let me just say that okay. uh, I I don't know how everybody else feels. Although, from what I can tell from various different uh, legal writing treatises, not everyone agrees with this whole like put out the name and then in parentheses with a quote, put out the short heading. If it's pretty, if we're like, for example, if we're talking about uh, the Hillsborough County school district and there's only one school district uh, being talked about in the whole brief, I may not have any parenthetical. I may just, I'll say it once. And then everything after that is just school district. 
Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I generally do exactly what you're saying and establish, you know, sort of formally establish a short form, but it's clearly not necessary. I mean, we're not, it's not like we're drafting contracts, you know, that are going to be analyzed, you know, in, in that way. Right. Um, if, if you're using a short form that is inherently obvious to the most casual observer, you don't have to also include it in a parenthetical with quotes and whatever, right? Right. Well, I mean, a couple things. One, I have to assume that the judges are going to look at the cover and at least see generally who's in the caption. <laughs> so if I, if, you know, obviously when we go into the argument, you wouldn't just start by calling them the short term. But I usually begin by uh, 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 saying something like appellant, Hillsborough County School District. And then I just later on, I just call in the school district because I'll have assumed that the reader gets that that's the, the appellant and that that's the, the, the school district means the Hillsborough School District, as long as there's not multiple school districts. If I need to define it, then sometimes I don't even use that parenthetical quote thing. After I do it, I'll say I'll have just a, in a sentence, yeah, the Hillsborough County School District will be referred to as Hillsborough and the uh, Polk County School District will be referred to as Polk County, you know, or something like that. Because I, I don't like the whole parenthetical quote thing. I just feel like it disrupts the sentence. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. How do you feel then about know exactly what to call this. I call them in my head. I call them like argumentative short forms. I see lawyers who they pick short forms that they think are somehow influential over the court, right? In other words, they're picking something that I wouldn't pick. <laughs> like I'm trying to come up with an example, but maybe you call you know the defendant tortfeasor, you know, or, or, or something that is a little bit conclusory, or maybe on the other end, um, you call them by their nickname, you know. Uh, their name is William Smith, and you want to call them Bob in the brief. Um, I'm not sure I like that. How do you feel about that? I mean, argumentative, I'm not necessarily a big fan of. Um, I, a couple of things. One, if you're talking about multiple parties and you need a way to just, ref you, you know, I don't, you need a way to refer to them as together. I could see, you know, tortfeasors, you know, being the, the general not because you're trying to be argumentative necessarily, but because you don't want to use defendants or appellants because the, you know, every judge hates that because that's like reading the same thing over and over again. You can't distinguish one brief's appellants from another, but uh, uh, you need some plural way to refer to them. Otherwise you're going to be either referring to them by abbreviations, which I hate, <laughs> it becomes alphabet soup, or you're referring to them as uh, Diker, Donovan, and so it, you know, and then it becomes too too long of a sentence because you have to repeat it every time. So I, I'm okay with a plural way of doing it. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say you know the thieves, you know, I mean, or something too argumentative, <laughs> the liars. <laughs> but I had a client want me to do that once, and I I refused. But uh, I do think if you're the appellant. I feel like you have some professional obligation to pick a short form that you know <laughs> that the appellee is not going to object to or want to refuse to use so that right. it puts the court in the position then of having two different short forms. Yeah. I think you should you should try to pick a short form that's at least neutral enough that the other <laughs> that the other party can adopt it and use it. 
<laughs> I I agree with that. I I and I try to do that, and and uh, and I try to adopt the other person's if I can, just for that exact reason. Um, another, if there's common short forms, you know, like maybe we're dealing with uh, a borrower, I might use that, you know, borrower lender to distinguish between two or, or, uh, uh, owner and surety in a surety context, you know, type of thing. Um, especially if the surety's name is really long or something, then it just makes sense then to refer to them as the surety. Everybody then knows what their role is too, <laughs> type of thing. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. Chances are you don't deal with appellate bonds on a daily basis, but when you do, it's important and it's urgent. CSBA has an extensive collection of educational and reference materials on their website, including articles like, How Much Does an Appeal Bond Cost?, or using real estate to secure appeal bonds, and even as a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements. But if you still have questions or just want to talk to a knowledgeable appellate bond specialist, call CSBA at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes, but I suggest you take an opportunity right now to add their contact information to your own contact list so you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. In addition to being a longtime sponsor of this podcast, CSBA is a premier sponsor of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Let's talk about everybody's favorite topic, uh, record sites. You know, the rule, you you read from the rule before, and the rule requires 9.210B3 required. It says, with references to the appropriate pages of the record or transcript. And, again, I take that pretty literally uh, to mean that just about anything uh, in your statement of facts should probably have a record site. I'm a little bit militant about that, I guess. Um, how do you feel about uh, record sites? I am the same way as you. I, I take that very literally. And I, yeah. I, you know, I try to include a record site for pretty much everything I say. I, I mean, uh, I think when you and I were talking before, I think you had said that unless it's just a general statement that's leading into a, a further discussion, I maybe wouldn't include a record site. Um, in other words, if the rest of the paragraph is going to support what I just said that has record sites, and then maybe I'll give myself a little bit of leeway in that in that introductory paragraph, the the, the nature of the case. I might I might it, I try to keep that only a paragraph and on one page, not one of those like all all whole page paragraphs. So I may if it, if it's pushing the uh, that paragraph too much, I may and I know that it's nothing I'm saying is going to be necessarily too objectionable. It's going to be supported by what I'm going to say in the fact section. I may cut the the uh, record sites in that area, but that's the only time. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because that, that's on my list. And as long as long as you brought it up, I'm curious because I see some some people do this um, where the first paragraph of the statement of facts is more of an, an introduction. It's really not a statement of facts, and it can be a little bit more 
argumentative, I guess, uh, because again, you're, you know, from the, from the writer's perspective, this is the first thing the judge is reading. So you want to sort of lay it out there in a way that influences them, uh, to your position. But I don't know. I've always been hesitant to do that because I don't think that the, Technically, under the rule, it really isn't inviting that. Um, it's not inviting an introduction. It's inviting a statement of the facts. Um, I think that something like that might be more appropriate in a separate section, but then we have the whole controversy over whether do the rules allow you to have an introductory, right. <laughs> an introductory section or not. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious. Do you think, you think that that's a, a fair reading of the rules uh, as long as it's it's brief, the, the quote-unquote introduction uh, to the statement of facts? I do. Uh, candidly, I, I have struggled with this. There was a, a little uh, article several years ago at this point, in um, back when, when the appellate practice section actually had a newsletter instead of a, a, a more of a blog <laughs> type. And somebody wrote on introductions. I think they interviewed interviewed uh, 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 judges, and, and it seems like there was, the world was pretty split on whether to have an introductory section where you could be a little more argumentative and you set up the case for the judges. Um but to me, that also one, it's not. There's, there's no precedence for that in the rule, <laughs> and two, it, it becomes repetitive because that's your summary of the argument, but just on a different page, and then you're gonna have a summary again, and it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, so to me, the nature of the case is that I interpret that as this is the relevancy of what you're about to hear. <laughs> I mean, it. If you just jump into the facts section, or worse, the procedures, the <laughs> judges are in, a, in 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 the ocean. You're just through the judges in the deep end of your case with no life raft, no no context of what they're about to read or why they're reading it, etc. So I do feel like that an introductory paragraph that highlights the the highlights, you know, uh, the, it maybe introduces the parties, or maybe it's a little more general. Uh, sure. This is what the judge ruled. Uh, and, you know, maybe you can hint that it's wrong for this reason, you know, so the judges know that these are why you're going to emphasize these facts. Uh, and then and you keep that really short, keep it to a paragraph. And and, and I, I the reason the other reason why I think that's OK is I try to emulate what the judges do. If you've noticed a lot of great opinions out there, start with this introductory paragraph that tells the reader everything they're about to read. The main, main facts, the main procedure, the main uh, um, question, and then why it's right or wrong. <laughs> and, and, and so that's what I try to do with my briefs. If not, try to write this in a way that they can cut and paste that into their opinion. If I've done my job right, that's what I hope that they – not that I've ever seen anyone do this, but <laughs> that I feel – if they would – I would feel like I've done my job and that, that's nature of the case paragraph. That's how, that's how I justify it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think either way, um, it's a gray area of the rules, I think, a little bit. Because if you are discussing the nature of the case, but you're not providing record sites because what you're doing is really not, you know, it's not factual in the sense that it's not, not saying that it's, that it's incorrect, but, you know, it's more advocacy. Um, I, I'm not sure that's technically proper for the statement of facts. Um, I'm not sure... And, and like you said, an introductory section is not authorized by the rules. So I, I feel like you pick your poison. Like either way, <laughs> you know, either way, you're uh, doing something that is probably 
not only fine, but, but a good idea uh, to orient the court. It's just, it, it sort of fits in this no man's land in the rules. So let's take a textualist perspective here. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> here we out. Here we out. The rule says nothing about introductions. Right? So as, as by default, that's technically not gray. It says nothing about it. So if uh, expression of, of, of some sections means the exclusion of others. So that's why I don't think introductions a good idea. Plus just in, from the second DCA perspective, where do they, where does the staff attorney put that in the summary or the compilation? Cause I mean, maybe that's a good reason to include the introduction because they're going to put it first and you're going to get your first word in. I, I don't know. But uh, technically, it's not. Maybe it gets cut. I mean, this is a question probably for uh, you have Jared on here all the time. Maybe it's a question for Jared. Where, where does the introduction end up going in a compilation before the second DCA or the summaries, as they call them? But but looking at the uh, the, the that uh, rule, the, the rule 9.210, uh, and it says nature of the case. Well, nature one of the, I just looked this up on the on Google. Nature says is defined as the basic or inherent features of something, especially when it's seen uh, as characteristics of it. So to me, that's that is the introductory paragraph. The nature of the case, the basic or inherent features of what you're what the court's about to decide. No, I agree with that. But then, but then, how do we square the very last part of that same sentence, which says with references to the appropriate pages of the record or transcript? Well, and again, that's the rub, right? You're right. <laughs> and I'm not saying that. And nine times, maybe eight times out of ten, I usually put record sites in there, and I think that you probably should. The only reason I would do that to remove it is if I'm trying to keep it condensed so that they can read it and move on. <laughs> and, 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 and especially if I'm not, if I'm being, if there's a, a hint of persuasion or argumentativeness, I don't want to use that word, but because I try not to be argumentative, but active persuasion, I do cite. I, 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 I'm very religious, but if it's, if it's a general bland, mundane nature of the case, you know, general features of the case, I, I, I may skip the site just to keep it short. Well, but I think that we agree that once we get past that <laughs> paragraph, whatever it might be, the 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 statement of facts is intended to be, I don't want to say objective, right? Because we're not doing our job if we're being a, a completely objective. We're we're picking facts. We're telling a story in a way that we're trying to you know get a certain reaction out of the court. But at least. Uh, it's not supposed to be blatantly argumentative. Agreed. I agree. I completely agree. I find in some of the briefs that I'm reading lately that, 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 that this is something that is not, <laughs> not necessarily honored all the time. I, I, I tend to see a lot more argumentative statement of facts than I think is appropriate. And, and, you know, and I don't respond to that. If I'm the appellee by being argumentative in my statement of facts, I'll address all those things in my argument section. Um, in fact, sometimes I've just noted in a response to the statement of facts that, you know, I'm going to, that the statement of facts of the appellant is so argumentative, I'm going to address it in my, <laughs> my argument section just to sort of make the point that, hey, you know, uh, all that stuff is not really facts, it's argument. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, and I could see that. I, I could see that. But let me ask you a question going back to record sites, because this is actually something that I've struggled with is sometimes the fact is really an inference based on multiple pieces of evidence that you're drawing as 
part of the, especially in a situation where the jury is ruled in your favor. So, you know, you can kind of take some liberalities with the inferences, so to say, or you're in a summary judgment situation and you should be able to draw the inferences in your favor. I don't know how you, how do you deal with that when it's not really like, okay, you know, the light was red and I can cite so-and-so's testimony. Instead, it was like the light was gray and I'm looking at two different testimonies that got me there. (laughs) You know, what do you do in that situation? You know, I think that kind of analysis is more appropriate to an argument section. I mean, I guess it depends on the circumstances, but I, I try to be more, more factual in my statement of facts. And then if I need to use those facts to, you know, then they're sort of in the reader's head. I've sort of introduced some, introduced the idea. Hopefully I've done it in such a way that they've already drawn the conclusion that I want them to draw. Uh, but before I actually go connect those dots uh, for the court, I'll do that in the argument section. Hmm. I mean, I, I see your point, and I, I try to do. I try to obviously limit too much inference drawing. But there are some times where I read something that somebody else may have read it completely different. But I'm drawing this fact from these pages. But I could see where somebody could interpret those pages differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, ultimately it all comes down to what, if it's something that's so important, you know, advocacy comes first, right. Over, over just a dogmatic, you know, following of the rules. But, um, but generally speaking, all other things being equal, I would try to draw the, uh, you know, put the analysis and drawing the inferences from those facts into the argument section, because I think that's more intellectually fair. Most of the time. Okay. Good point. So where do you think the line, can you describe where the line is drawn between, you know, the, the, the shading of facts for, for advocacy purposes and argument? I mean, where, where, where do you draw that line? Well, I think that kind of goes back to our, our, our last point. I mean, I think that uh, it can be difficult I mean, in, in hotly con- contested cases, particularly those that have gone all the way to trial, because you want to tell the story. I mean, to me, it goes back to you want to tell the story. You don't want to be a bland, you know, fact by fact or witness worse witness. This is what one witness said. And this is what second witness, <laughs> you know, it, so there, there, in order to blend the story, I certainly don't think you should go out of your way to draw the conclusion necessarily, but uh, um, there there is a certain amount of, I think, blending that needs to go on. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, I think, and, and my question wasn't fair because, it, you know, it, it's, it's one of those, um, you know, it's like the uh, definition of pornography. I know it when I see it, right? I, <laughs> fair I, enough. Know, I, I can sort of get a feel for what I think is, proper advocacy in the statement of facts and what I think is, is over the line. And um, I don't know, you know, I think that a lot of it is in the language that you use. I think if you use language that is too emotionally charged, you know, or too, um, you know, demeaning or divisive or whatever, you know, there may be an appropriate point for that in your argument section. Maybe not, uh, but probably not in the facts. Um, so I think, you know, it's just sort of the, the, the language that you use, uh, the, the facts that you choose to describe, um, you know, the way you use sort of like what we talked about in the Hemingway podcast, the way you use active voice and simple sentences. I think all those sorts of things, um, 
lend to advocacy and to making your statement of facts, you know, sort of interesting and persuasive without, you know, again, it's like, it's like the showing your work. It's the leading, leading the reader to the conclusion rather than telling them what the conclusion is. In the facts, I hope to lead them to an inescapable conclusion. And in the argument section, I tell them what conclusion they should reach. (laughs) I, I agree with you. I mean, that's why, you know, when when you started this, podcast asks you, you ask how important are the facts. That's why I think the facts are so important. But by the, if I've done my job right, by the end of it, hopefully the uh, judges are already relying on their general knowledge of the law to, to know what conclusion I want them to reach. And then my argument section is just reminding them, yep, the, what you thought of the law was correct. And here's the reason why the conclusion's correct. <laughs> so as drafting goes, I mean, I imagine we all have parts that we like more or less uh, in our, in our jobs, hopefully we like our jobs for the most part, but, but, but certain parts of it, I mean, would you say that you enjoy drafting the statement of facts? Do you see it as more of a chore? Um, do you, do you distinguish between, between that and the rest of the brief? I do enjoy it. Um, cause I, I to me, that's within reason, obviously it's when you get to be the creative author. It's when you get to be the John Grishams, but not necessarily, or the Hemingways, but not necessarily that extent. I mean, like you would if, I mean, obviously you get to make up the facts in that scenario. <laughs> so you're a little tied, you know, there's that one fact that you need to keep the story moving, and then you got to figure out how to deal with it. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think uh, uh, you and I had talked about this before, and that it is tedious. Pinpoint siding is so tedious, uh, and it's so time consuming. Um, I wish I could just, I, I, I'm not going to want to steal your thunder because I know you had wrote this. I wish I could just proffer it off on an associate and figure out how to still be uh, 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 efficient. But usually that falls to the brief writer and not somebody else to go yeah. do. And so that part is tedious. I agree. I don't really care for that. But at the same time, I, I love the drafting. But to me, it's like putting together a puzzle for of all the facts into this wonderful little mosaic for the judge. <laughs> Yeah, I think I have a, a love-hate relationship with the statement of facts. I, I hate the first part, right? I hate the the digging through uh, – not hate. Hate is a strong word. But I don't always enjoy digging through the record and, and coming up with the pinpoint sites and, and doing the mechanical process of getting all the facts on paper. Uh, and if I could uh, pawn that off on an associate or the trial lawyer or something, that would be great. Uh, but then I enjoy the second part, which is what you're talking about, the creative aspect of now that I have the, the nuts and the bolts in there, you know, how do I massage that into something that's actually good, right? <laughs> if, if somebody wanted to do just a very boring, plain vanilla statement of facts for me, uh, that would be great. And then I could take that and morph it into something that's a lot better, right? <laughs> Right. And that's the fun part, right? The creative part, the writing part, the figuring out how do I tweak this here and there to make it sound better. Um, that that That's a great part of writing the brief, and I do enjoy that. Yeah, I, I agree. And and it's, it's, it's getting all the facts organized and then trying – that's the part I don't like. But then blending them into this story is the fun part. I mean, it seems like a time-consuming part at times. I mean, but – uh, I, I agree. That's a fun part. Before we close, though, I have a uh, I have one question we, that had just occurred to me while we were talking that we didn't uh, talk about beforehand. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on uh, 
is there any time we're talking about either a statutory procedure or talking about case citations or, or is there any purpose for any law in the statement of facts ever for you? Hmm. You know, yes, I think there can be. I, I don't think it's common, but I do think if there is some procedural aspect that is particularly important uh, that needs to be described in such a way by citing to the statute or something. Yeah, I, I have done that. I think generally no, generally no law in those, but there can be times where it's just an important part of the story that has to say that we're, you know, following a procedure pursuant to statute, whatever, or a rule, whatever, which says this. Um, I can see instances, and I have done that in the past, but I, I, but I would say not generally. Uh, and I tend to agree. And I think the, uh, uh, you'll see this probably more when it's a heavy statutory driven case and you're going to later be talking about, uh, like you can't understand the facts beyond without the context of the statute or why people would be doing, it. especially if there's like procedural timings of things necessarily, you know, maybe there's, maybe it's a guardianship case or a probate case where the timing of, you know, the filing of your statement of claims and stuff like that is important. <clears throat> But uh, and so you maybe need a little backdrop to explain that before you get into the facts. But you have to be very careful, I think, in in or I do. I find myself having to be very careful. That's really where you got to be rigid on making it objective, not interpreting the rule or this this the the statutory procedural rule. Just saying, like, here's what the statute says. Here's what this happened. And and, that, and for me, when in terms of subsections, that's its own little subsection. And then I go into uh, uh, whatever the you know, here's the rest of why we did that from a procedural standpoint. And then in the argument, I, I put it all together for the judges. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that sounds like we, we sort of view that the same way. Well, Chris, thanks. I, I feel like we've, you know, we've probably beat the statement of fact, statement of the case to death. Um, to anybody who's still listening, um, you're clearly our peeps. And, uh, <laughs> you know, thank you. <laughs> and we'll see you at the DCA Judges Conference uh, <laughs> in a couple weeks, hey, right? <laughs> looking forward to it. Definitely looking forward to it. Chris, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks again to Chris Donovan for being my guest on the show. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. When you need a bond, you often need it quickly. CSBA's contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it now to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.